All right. Good morning, beloved. If you are one of our big kids and you want to head towards Big Kid City, uh, go back here in the back, get in the lines, go downstairs. You'll be learning about the same things that we are up here. For the rest of us that are going to remain up here, if you'll pull out a copy of scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to continue marching through that text. Uh, One of the things that I really admire about Paul, the writer of Ephesians, one of the things that I admire most about him is not just that he was an excellent apostle or theologian, it's that he was an excellent anthropologist an excellent uh, studier of people. He was an excellent sociologist. He studied societies, uh, not just because uh, we can see him doing this whenever he goes, uh, you know, to Greece and starts talking to the people about the unknown God or talking about how he makes himself all things to all people. I I, I think that it's actually massaged into uh, many of the epistles. Uh, where Paul just has this excellent understanding of who people are and the cultures that he is writing to. And he's wanting not just to know them, but understand how the gospel specifically applies to people. I think that at some level, Christians ought to be amateur anthropologists, studiers of people, uh, amateur sociologists, uh, studiers of society, so that we know specifically how the gospel applies One of the things that uh, I find most fascinating about humans, uh, not just humans in our time, in this day and age and in this place, is that we are paradoxical. Uh, One of the paradoxes that I see in people that uh, that I think is most fascinating is how quickly adaptable we are. Putting new people in new places at new times and new things, we we adapt very quickly as creatures. But the paradox is, is that even though we can adapt to new situations, we are always, it seems like, not just in today's day and age, but uh, 2,000 years ago, constrained by our natures. Uh, My son Jackson uh, came home and uh, heard one of his Latin teachers talking about uh, St. Augustine and the confessions. And he said, Dad, I want to read the confessions with you. And I thought, that sounds amazing. Uh, let's do that. So he reads a page, and then I'll read like seven pages, because it's pretty dense. Uh, But then we even got to uh, all of these things that he's talking about are ways that he was sinning, confessing sin at that time, uh, but in, uh, so it was sins at that time, but they were still things that are very pertinent today. It got a little awkward when we got to book three, and he starts talking about lust. So I'm reading about lust with my nine-year-old son, but I thought, where is it maybe a better place to learn than from the Confessions of St. Augustine? People are extremely adaptable, but we are still constrained. We are extremely adaptable to our environments, but we are constrained in our nature. We are exceptionally flexible creatures, but we are predictably inflexible and unchanging in our souls and our constitutions. So we, we may find uh, that we adapt very quickly to things like fashions. It seems like fashion comes and go, new trends, we recognize them, we want to fit in, and then uh, tomorrow they're really gone. We adapt very quickly to them, but uh, human nature still uses fashion in some really good ways to express uh, beauty, to exp- express the aesthetic, but also in fashion we uh, express sensuality and status and things like that. So we're, we're quick to adapt. But we always seem to fall into the same things that we've always uh, faced. We're quick to adapt to new seasons of life, moving from uh, high school to college, from uh, college into career, into marriage, into uh, starting um, lives with uh, children and families, uh, empty nests. We can adapt fairly quickly to those things. If you think about it, millions of people every year uh, have, uh, have uh, you know, start new careers, and they, they tend, I mean, by and large, it's pretty amazing. Like, people just adapt to those things well. But... At the same time, when we adapt into those new seasons, we tend to find ourselves both excelling and struggling in the same ways that we always have. We hope for, anticipate, welcome, and adapt to change, yet there is something permanent in our nature. We keep on almost coming up with new ways of expressing old things that we struggle with, both successes and sins. The clearest way that I see this uh, today in our society, uh, or maybe even in me, is in technology. Uh, How quickly we adopt new technologies. You think think about it, uh, computing in any kind of modern sense is only really, in, in a way that we would recognize it, is only about 25 years old. 
The, uh, the iPhone is only 10 years old, and can you even imagine going out of your home without your iPhone or you know, smartphone of some kind? There's even new words to describe these. I, I just learned this uh, is in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, uh, nomophobia. Has anybody heard this term before? It's no mobile phobia. You're going out of your house. It's that anxiety that you feel when you walk out of a house without your phone. It's like a, a, a totally new thing that people are struggling with, but I, I think it probably expresses uh, some kind of ancient anxieties that we've kind of always had. Humans immediately adapt. They, they increase the capacity for their creativity, the design, the productivity with electronics, yet they predictably fall along some of the same glorious paths of innovation and some of the same ruts of human folly. One of these new words that has found its way into the Oxford English Dictionary is, uh, uh, is FOMO. Y'all are probably familiar with it. It's an acronym, FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. It's one of the myriad of new words that has found its way into Webster's, uh, expressing uh, what seem like new things, but it's not new at all. We've only cleared an electronic path into our homes, our hands, and our hearts for things that we've always experienced, anxieties we've always experienced. The fear of missing out is not new. I wonder if you, uh, if you kind of understand this. When you even heard the uh, fear of missing out, nobody probably had to explain that idea to you because it's something that you were familiar with. Yet, it's something that it's almost like technology has become better at creating in us. Do you fear missing out? Missing the party, the vacation, the career success that you see in other people? It's almost like these tech companies have found a way of capitalizing on our fear of missing out. Facebook seems like it uh, has found a way to literally monetize your fear of not being connected with other people and developing deep friendships. Or uh, maybe they found a way of capitalizing on uh, you having a fear of missing out on the love of your life or parenting your children the way that you want to. Instagram seems to have capitalized on our fear of missing out on the body that we've always wanted, the symbols of wealth, the trends in pop culture and politics. Twitter, it seems like, has found a way of capitalizing on our fear of missing out on the latest news, the latest political record, uh, rhetoric, the, uh, the newest public shaming that everybody is doing. It seems like even maybe more nefariously, uh, so-called uh, dating apps, uh, maybe the more nefarious ones, even pornography has found a way of capitalizing on your fear of missing out on the sensual life you've always inwardly desired. For me, I found my FOMO in a very specific place, and it was on YouTube. Uh, 2016 to 2018 were pretty difficult years for me. And I've never subscribed to anything on YouTube, but I found, I don't even remember how it came about, I found this couple that was sailing around the world. That's what they decided to do with their lives, was get on a boat and sail from Greece all the way around the world. That's what their goal was. And I started watching this, and it was almost just this escape for me. I, I saw this, like, beautiful, amazing, like, creative couple getting on a boat and, like, just doing it, getting out there. And what it created in me is almost this anxiety of going, here's this couple that's just, like, they're doing it. Like, what am I missing out on? Am I doing something that is significant with my life? It seems so amazing, so beautiful that they were willing to take this huge step. What am I doing with my life? Am I doing anything significant? It's almost like this couple on YouTube was giving me like a third life crisis. Like I'm a third way through my life and they were just giving me all of this anxiety. What is it that I am missing out on? So, if you experience the anxiety that comes with the acute sense that life may not, has not, or will not bring you the desires of your heart, I want you to know that City Church is the place for you. City Church is a safe place for us, those people who are worried about missing out, who don't necessarily feel like they're getting all out of life and that they're not included in the party. One of the reasons why I can say this is because Ephesians uh, chapter 2 has an anecdote for this this morning. It has the anecdote for us this morning. 
You see, at the root, the fear of missing out, FOMO, preys on our insecurities, leaving us isolated, not just from God, but from one another. And the Holy Spirit this morning has inspired Paul to uh, give us a message that crushes those insecurities, eviscerates our isolation, and gives you one single message, and that's that you are included. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning is going to tell you there's no need for FOMO. There's no need for fear of missing out. You're included in the greatest thing of all time. Let's go here and read with me in chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 tell us is that Jesus is at once crushing our walls of hostility in order to build us into a peaceful home. So there's two things that Jesus is doing this morning. He's crushing walls of hostility, our walls of hostility. He's crushing them down. But he's doing that in order to also build us up into a peaceful home for God. We need a little bit of context here. If you look back at verse 11, you'll notice that that verse starts with a therefore. In order to rightly understand uh, not just these verses, but where Paul is going, we have to understand last week's message. Will preached last week that there was a problem, a process, and a purpose. The problem for us today and forever is that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. But the amazing story of the gospel is that God provides a process where his rich mercy and his love, by grace through faith, saves our lives. But it's all to the end of the purpose. The purpose is good works. So he, he, he actually, Paul tells us, therefore, remember. This word remember, it seems like maybe this just small word. This is actually the one commandment that we get in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's been just doing this unfolding of the glory of God. And here he gets here and he says, therefore, since you are saved by grace through faith and you are given to all of these predestined, planned, amazing good works that God has for you, therefore, I want you to remember something, Paul says. He says, remember. Now, remember is kind of a strange commandment. And if we're being honest, what he tells us to remember is strange as well. Last week, Will said that uh, we all start with this story, the story of uh, death and sin and trespasses. And what Paul is telling us to do is go back and remember those things. Paul is telling us to remember where you came from. Where do we come from? Look with me in verse 12. It says that we are separated that we were alienated, that we were strangers, that we were hopeless, and that we were alone. 
We were separated and alienated, strangers. We were hopelessly alone as it relates to God the Father. And we're told by Paul to remember our original state. Why? Because verse 1 says that we were dead in our trespasses. He wants you to remember that. Why does the church spend so much time talking about sin? I've heard this question uh, really uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, And I remember it very specifically. I always get asked, why does the church, which has all of these glorious, amazing truths, talk so much about sin? And what Paul is saying is, is that you must remember your sinful state. That we can't help but do it. Why? Because it's going to end in faith. You can't treasure the faith that you end with if you don't start by knowing and understanding just how far separated, alienated, far off you were from the God of this universe. So Paul is telling us here, you must remember your sinful state. Why? Because there's a process of repentance. We've got to identify sin. We have to know what it is. We have to be able not just to identify sin, but confess sin. We have to turn away from sin in order to have faith, in order to turn toward Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us to remember where we came from so that we might treasure where we are and where we are going. Paul is not telling us to remember our separation only. He's telling us to remember who and what we are separated from. He says, remember that you were separated at that time, that you were separated from what? From Jesus. That at one time, you need to remember that you were completely separated from Jesus. But not just Jesus, he actually talks about the blessings that come along with that, that you need to remember that you were separated from the commonwealth of God's people, the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, There was something that God just stirred in me this week, thinking about the word commonwealth. It's not a word that we use a whole lot, not unless, I think it was used more this week than it really ever is, because it was talking about the commonwealth of Virginia with the elections that happened this week. It's kind of a strange word. We don't think of commonwealth, but what what we're told here is, is that at one time, we were actually separated from the common wealth, the, the, uh, the aggregate wealth. He's not just talking about like money and things like that. He's talking about the inclusion with God's people, the wealth that comes from being included in God's people. You were separated from that. You were separated from the covenants of promise. The promises to God's people, you were separated from those. And you need to remember, Paul says, that you were separated from hope. You were hopeless you were far apart from whom? From the Father. What we find is that there is a real wall dividing us from God and from the experiences of His blessings. We find that there's actually a wall that is built up. Now, most walls are not built by both sides. Uh, The most famous wall of all time, the uh, Great Wall of China, you can literally see it from space, I'm told, I've never been. Like, you can literally see this huge wall, and it wasn't built by both sides. The Chinese didn't go to the Mongols and go, hey, we're kind of tired of you and your hordes coming in and destroying and pillaging and all of these sorts of things. Let's just agree to build a wall. They didn't do that. They, on their own, decided we're going to build a wall because we're tired of these people coming in and running over us. So they were building a wall to keep the Mongols out. But even if you think about like prisons, the the prisoners don't partner together in most cases, I don't think, to build the walls that wall them in. Most walls are not built by both sides. That doesn't mean that all walls are bad. In fact, uh, many neighbors actually agree to build fences. It's not because of rising hostilities. It's just, hey, we want a little bit of privacy. Uh, For about 351 days a year here in Texas, I'm very thankful, very thankful for walls that wall in the air conditioning that keep us nice and cool or nice and warm. However, in verse 14, we find the nature of the wall that has been built, and we find out who has been building it. Verse 14, look with me there. This is not a pleasant wall. It is not a fence. It is a wall of hostility between us and God that was built up on both sides. God built one side of the wall, verse 15 says, with the law of commands. 
He had a perfect standard of righteousness, and he uh, built that literally builds this wall in between us and God. And we were quite content ourselves to make sure that we walled the other side of that wall into our own kingdom of squalor. Is this wall a wall of peace? Is it a simple fence? No, it's a wall of war, we find out. Why? Because a righteous God could not allow unrighteous enemies into his kingdom. And we didn't want in any way. And Paul's telling us to remember that. He's telling us to remember that. 30 years ago yesterday was kind of the uh, symbolic end of the Cold War. When a man in the middle of the night goes out with a pickaxe to the Berlin Wall and starts hitting and chopping and chipping away. And soon, uh, words spread on both sides of the wall and a crowd set about destroying the Berlin Wall. They descended on the wall with sledgehammers and pickaxes and they celebrated the tearing down of this wall. Why? Was it a wall of peace? No, it was a wall of war. The Berlin Wall was a physical and ideological barrier, not just between East and West Germany, but between the Western world and communism, between liberal democracy and communism. The existence of that wall was serious. There's a young uh, speechwriter for President Reagan at the time who, uh, his name was Peter Robinson, and he uh, traveled. He was supposed to be writing this speech out for uh, President Reagan to give, standing in front of this wall of hostility. So Peter Robinson goes to Germany, goes to West Germany, and uh, the ambassador there introduces him to some people. And before going into this small little dinner that he was to attend to ask these people about their experience of the wall, about their experience of East and West Germany, uh, the ambassador told him, uh, people don't even really see the wall anymore. Uh, It's not something that people talk about. It's not significant to them. And Peter Robinson was a little incredulous. He asked the people that were at that party, how do you feel about the wall? He said, we don't talk about it, but we feel it. One of the hosts said, "Uh, my sister lives on the other side of that wall. I've not seen her in decades. I don't even know if she's still alive. The, the host, the woman who hosted the party, uh, went from being this just kind, uh, very uh, um, just uh, genuinely like sincere and welcoming woman uh, to uh, just being hard about it. She goes, if Mr. Gorbachev was uh, uh, serious about tearing down that wall, or t- serious about peace, he would tear down that wall of hostility. That's what she told Peter Robinson, the speechwriter, and that's the words that we get in the speech, this famous speech where uh, President Reagan says, Mikhail Gorbachev, if you're interested in peace, if you're interested in prosperity, tear down this wall. Why? Because peace and prosperity could not exist with a wall of hostility. It had to be torn down. It had to be torn down. Verse 13. In Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The good news of the gospel is is that Jesus brings us near by his blood. You need to remember that you were separated, that you were alienated, that you were strangers, because the good news of the gospel is that by Jesus' blood, by his death, by the cross, he brings us near. He includes us. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. We We see here that Jesus is himself the peacemaker. You remember that hostility that existed? Verse 15 says that uh, he abolished the law of commandments and made peace, reconciling us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus kills the hostility. The hostility that you were supposed to remember existed between you and God, this wall of hostility, Jesus broke it down and he killed it. That's good news. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus' broken body broke down the dividing wall between us and the Father, between us and his kingdom, between us and the blessings of his kingdom. 
There is no longer anything that separates those who are in Jesus from the Father. Romans 8.38 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because he killed the hostility. He broke down the wall. That's what Jesus does. That's the goodness of the gospel. Christian, I wonder what figment of your imagination, what mirage masquerades as a wall in your life. I wonder what it is that you imagine continues to separate you from the love of the Father. I wonder if you feel like You are too unlovely for God to bring you near, too insignificant for God to care, too self-absorbed for God to take notice of you. I wonder if you feel this morning too far off, and what you need to hear this morning is the words of this text. You who were once far off, Jesus brings you near. The wall of sin is not too high. It is not too impenetrable. Jesus has torn it down. Jesus has broken it down for those who put their faith in him. For it is by grace that you have been saved, not through works, so that no man can boast. I wonder if you fear missing out on God and his kingdom, a a spiritual fear of missing out. I'm not really even all that interested in going in and diagnosing all of the things that you could have anxiety about missing out on. I don't necessarily even care if you fear missing out on the party or whatever you saw on social media. What I do wonder is if this morning, in the depths of your heart, you have a fear that you're missing out on nearness to God and his kingdom and his blessings. I wonder that. Verse 18 tells you, that you have been included, that you have access. Hear these sweet words, Christian, for through him we have access to one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. Notice the Trinitarian aspect of that. It's almost like uh, the Trinity conspired to give you access to himself. For through him we, have bo- uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's no fear of missing out in Christians. But Jesus isn't just breaking down the walls. He is also building them up. Did you catch that? When we were first talking about this, I gave you the amazing news that Jesus is breaking down walls of hostility. But maybe even the sweeter news for us this morning is that he is also building something up. Verse 19. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, notice the Trinitarian aspect of this too, in him, in Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit. God is building something. God is in the process of building something. He's building, the words right out of the text are, he's building a household with a foundation and a cornerstone that is Christ. He's building up a structure and it is a temple and it is a dwelling place for him. You know what God is building this morning? He's building a home of peace for himself. And he's using you to do it. You are actually becoming a part of God's home. He's unifying his people and building them together into his dwelling place. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit of a strange concept. It's hard to imagine ourselves as stones that are being built into this glorious temple. Okay, that's kind of a strange idea, but I want to uh, maybe uh, help us understand this a little bit more and understand that it is not a completely foreign or strange concept. It's not a completely foreign idea. Why? Because in the Old Testament, we saw that he had already done this. But he had done it with brick and mortar. He had done it with stones. 
There was a temple that the, play, that the people went to worship, and inside the temple, there were just progressively these places that got more holy until you got to the place where God himself manifested his presence in the Holy of Holies. It was walled in, and then there was this uh, curtain, okay? And when we think curtain, we think, oh, that sounds nice. It's like these not-so-nice uh, black curtains on the side, maybe something that's, you know, velvety and a little denser. This was like, when we talk curtain, go into the Old Testament and read how thick these things were. These were like inches thick fabric woven together. They went from floor to ceiling to make sure that the Holy of Holies was a place that God's righteousness could exist. And if a person went into that place having not been purified, if a priest went into that place having not been purified, their unrighteousness could not be in front of God's righteousness. It would kill them. They literally tied ropes around them so that if they went in not fully clean, they could pull them back out. There is a place where God's presence was made manifest in the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holies. But in Matthew 27, verse 51, right after Jesus' death on the cross, it says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Acts 2 says this, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God's people are now the temple. God's people are now the manifest presence of God. We have the Spirit living inside of us. There is no holy of holies existing in some temple there. It is in his people. God's presence is in his people. He is building us into a temple, into his dwelling place. And one day we will see precisely how it is that God builds us into his home, into his dwelling. But today we can know some part, some nature of the home that he is building us into. For many of us, we we think about home and it's not necessarily a place of peace. Some of us, when we think about our home, we don't naturally think of a peaceful place. That's not so with God's home that he is building. He has not broken down the walls of hostility to bring us back to a place of unrest. Verse 14 says he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Verse 15 says that he makes peace. Verse 17 says that he preaches peace. You get the idea of something that he wants to characterize his home. For those who grew up in hostile homes, for those of us who have marriages with walls built in them, for those of us living the busyness of life who are living amidst chaos, hear this. The better news is that you are built into a restful, peaceful, comfortable, loving, caring, and orderly home for God. And maybe if you'll catch this, this is even sweeter. The better news is that you will not just reside in this home, but that you will be the home. You won't just be a person to come into the home that might later be kicked out of the home. God is, I mean, in some mysterious, magnificent way, actually using you to build up his peaceful home, his dwelling place. What wonderful news in the gospel that Jesus is crushing our walls of hostility in order to build us into his peaceful home. So that's the primary thing that I want for you to get this morning. If you walk out of here uh, not knowing anything else, just know that whatever animosity, whatever uh, hostility existed between you and God, if you were in Christ Jesus, that no longer exists. Nowhere does it exist for you. That wall has been broken down, it's been torn down, it's crumbled down, and God has included you into his kingdom of blessing if you were in Christ. But this wall-demolishing, home-building gospel doesn't just have power for the by-and-by or the future kingdom, it actually has power in the here and now. You see, this passage opens up actually not only talking about the hostility, the wall of hostility that exists between us and God. 
That's what we've been focusing on until this point. But this passage opens up talking about the divisions between Jews and Gentiles. And he says that what he's doing is actually unifying out of the hostility one people, Jews and Gentiles together in the church. See it with me in the passage. Verse 11 says, At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the so-called circumcision. Verse 15 says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17 says this, and he came and preached peace to whom? To those who were far off and to those who were near. It's almost like there were these two people The spiritual reality of Jesus' wall-busting demolition project extends to earthly walls and earthly hostilities. Okay, so I'm going to make a pivot here. I want you to come along with me to see how glorious this is. Jesus is not just breaking down spiritual barriers, spiritual walls of hostility between you and God the Father. He's not just building you up into one unified temple, one dwelling place of God. That peace that he is bringing actually extends to today, to today, to the walls of hostility that exist here in this city, maybe even in this room. Jesus is tearing down those walls. The spiritual reality of all of this is is that um, Jews were actually quite racist at this time. They they were using this term, the uncircumcision, like they were calling Jews, uh, I'm sorry, they were calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision uh, as a term of derision. They had, uh, in a lot of ways, walled themselves off. The the grace that they had received by being made into a people by God did not uh, humble their hearts, did not create softness and welcomingness to other people. For many Jews at this time, there was hostility that existed between them and Gentiles. And what Jesus is after is taking that occasion for sin and tearing down those walls. One of the negative, enduring constraints in humans is how content we are to build walls in between ourselves. Okay, so obviously in this room, there's not many of us that like Paul's words to them about like Jews and Gentiles are like ringing out like, oh, I have immediate application for that. Uh, My Jewish friend hates me. Like there's not many of us that are like resonating with that, but what we need to understand is, is that God is actually after tearing down all of these walls. When we build walls between ourselves and our creator, we will also build walls between us and other image barriers. Husbands and wives will build walls of hostility in their marriage. Parents and children will build walls of hostility in their families. Differences in class and power and privilege will foster hostility between people groups Dividing lines between gender and sexual orientation will widen. Races and nations will stoke hostilities that often seem insurmountable. These are the walls of hostility that we build when we are not submitted and not uh, with God the Father. I believe that God cares very much about these walls and very much about the hostilities that humans build between one another. I think that he cares so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in order to tear those things down. God is a God of justice. He is a God we see in this passage specifically of unity and of peace. God is a God of inclusion. God is a God of inclusion. God, we see in pop culture all the time Christians being made fun of because they say that our God is a God of exclusion, that we are a people of exclusion. And if they think that, they have not taken a look at the fact that God so loved this world that he was willing to give his only son on a cross that we might be saved. He tore down the wall of hostility. God is not a God of exclusion. He is a God of inclusion. He is including people in his kingdom and in his blessing. 
Here, here's one of the things that I feel like I've been learning, and uh, th- this might ruffle some feathers this morning. I, you know what? In fact, in some ways, I hope that it does so that we might be able to talk about these things more openly so that we can be unified together. Right now in our culture, there is a lot of talk about unity and commonality and inclusivity, but I perceive that the gaps are actually widening our culture. There is nothing new under the sun. However, some of the attitudes and some of the solutions that I see uh, here are somewhat new. And I think that they're potentially even more destructive. More and more people are willing to see divorce not as a wall-building exercise, but a wall-tearing-down exercise. Can I just be so bold to say that? Our our culture wants to almost say, hey, listen, let's tear down these walls in marriage. Let's just uh, just say that marriage is whatever we think that it is. We see divorce actually as something that tears down walls when those who have actually experienced divorce, who have actually seen their parents get divorced, know that that is not a wall-crushing, it is a wall-building exercise. And our culture wants to say something very different. We see the destruction of the family, fatherlessness and abortion being something that we actually just put our arms around and accept to some degree. We have have communities uh, in which 70% of uh, children are raised in fatherless homes. Across the United States right now, the number is nearing 40% that's happening. And it's almost like we're trying to make friends with that as a society and think that that is not a wall-building exercise. That is a wall-building exercise. It is creating walls of hostility between people groups. I see a new religion raising among us. Do you see it too? Do you see a new religion? We, we, have, we live not just in a country, but in a world that has wanted to actively forsake the existence of God and say that they are not religious. And, and, but what they're doing is actually building a religion. And one of the interesting things is, is that they're borrowing bricks out of God's kingdom, borrowing lumber out of God's kingdom to build their religion. This is a religion of social justice. And I'm concerned because there's a lot of really good motivations. There's a lot of good things that I think are at the heart of this movement. But what makes it a religion is is that they're trying to leave Jesus out of it. They're trying to build a religion without the gospel at the center of it. Let me maybe add some flesh to that a little bit. I see energy gathering around the causes of social justice, and it has all of the trappings of religion. It has its own doctrines. It has its own ethics. It has its own blasphemy laws. It has its own rituals. It has its own economics. Even in some cases, it has even its own dietary restrictions. However, the primary thing that I'm concerned about is its doctrine of justification and salvation. Get this. Get this. If we make social justice a religion, salvation is a self-righteousness. It is a self-atonement. You gain salvation by doing the right works of justice. You make the right noises on social media and you will be saved. You gain righteousness by renouncing the heretics. You evangelize the right things to your friends and then you will be saved. And this is completely opposed to the gospel that we heard about last week in Ephesians 2, that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not by works. We cannot build a religion on a foundation of social justice. That does not mean that there aren't really good desires, really good intentions behind all of these things. Don't listen to what I'm saying and think that that is what I mean. But what we must understand, the true and undefiled religion is serving the widow and the orphan, but it's because God has torn down the walls. It's because of the gospel. Don't leave aside the most powerful tool for inclusion and unity and peace. 
What I see a lot of in the social justice movement, even amongst Christians, is the desire to attach Jesus to their political beliefs as if you can be saved on the picket line. Because, uh, listen, Jesus is included in all of this. But what I think needs to happen is that Jesus needs to be the foundation of it. What Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 are saying is, is that the gospel must be. The gospel and the gospel alone is what will unite people from every nation. Hear that again. The gospel and the gospel alone is what will unite people from every nation. You want an end to racism? You want racial reconciliation? You need to know and understand that the the voice of the Bible speaks with one united word, that there is one who unites, and it is Jesus Christ. And we will see little bits of his kingdom arising in this time, in this age. There are good things to work for, but what you need to know and understand is that it will never come to full fruition until the end times. It will never come until Jesus shows up bringing with himself a new heavens, a new earth, with people from every nation declaring his kingship. You want an end to racism? Come, Lord Jesus. You want to work for racial reconciliation? Submit and love Jesus as the king of this universe. Don't leave the strongest tool for unity on the sideline. Don't just uh, put it in your pocket as if it was just another tool to bring out, to pull out. It's not. It is the thing that unites. The gospel of Jesus is the thing that unites. The gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrected life will put every wrong right. You, uh, maybe you lie awake at night thinking about all of the injustices in our society and around the world. Jesus is the only one who can put them right. Maybe even at some point that, that truth angers you. Because what you're trying to do right now is actually build those righteous works that you might be saved through your social justice religion. Is that uncomfortable? In some ways, I want to call us back to knowing and understanding that the gospel is the foundation for all of this. The gospel is that Jesus will bring an everlasting peace and put an end to all of the chaos. You hate drone strikes, you hate wars. Jesus is the one who puts the end to them once and for all and forever. Forever. This wall-demolishing, home-building gospel has the power, has the power to break down walls of hostility, bitterness, and disappointment and anger that you feel towards your spouse, not a divorce. The gospel has the power to collapse the wall of withheld love and acceptance raised between you and your siblings or you and your parents. It has the ability to actually crush that down, not silence, not withholdingness. The gospel has the power to create love and trust and cohesion and fabric across a society that is hurt. The power of the gospel is the power to destroy the barrier of enmity between people who look different than one another. If God raised his only son from a tomb of death, defeating it once and for all, defeating the wall of hostility once and for all, what in the world stands a chance against him? What in the world stands a chance against this wall-breaking, unifying, Temple building, dwelling place of peace making Savior. There is no physical or spiritual wall that God cannot break down. And when we forget this, we are doomed to fall into the patterns of our nature that we were talking about before. You can't save others, only Jesus can. Walls will continue to separate us from one another when we are separated from God. Walls will continue to separate us from one another because we are separated from God. The gospel of Jesus is the strong foundation on which we can build healthy homes free of divorce. For unified marriages and families, it is the strong foundation of a diverse and unified church and a humble nation which submits to and reflects who God is. How? 
How does it do it? How, how is the gospel? If you need to come back to me real fast and you go, I don't even know if I believe that. How is it that the gospel can possibly be the only thing that accomplishes all of this stuff? How is it? It's because in Jesus Christ, we have the reservoir of grace to extend to others. If you've been spending the last 10 years building enmity, a wall of enmity between you and your wife, no one understand that the Jesus Christ gives you the grace to pull you into his kingdom. That you need to remember that you were so far off, so separated from him, that the only thing that could have brought you back to him is Jesus Christ tearing down a wall of hostility and going, you're included. Man, that is a powerful message for you to be able to extend grace to your spouse. How is it that we can see uh, bridges built between different racial groups? It's not by willpower. It's not by new doctrines. It's by going, Jesus Christ died, gave his blood for the sins of many. And he included me in it. And I know that he will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How in the world can I stand in the midst in the midst of animosity in this world and not want to see unity brought? How can I do that when I know that Jesus Christ has included me in his kingdom? Not just that, that he was willing to die in order to include me. How can I be exclusive of other people? There's a lot deeper well there. I challenge you and your city groups, your fight clubs, if y'all are starting to form into discipleship groups, I challenge you this week, this week, answer the specific question, what is it about the gospel that actually brings the possibility of unifying people that look different from one another? How is it that this reservoir of grace can actually heal my marriage? Those are really good, deep questions. Ask those things as a community. Expect and hope for the fact that God might actually accomplish some of those things in your life. The gospel is the strong foundation on which we build. Jesus is crushing our walls of hostility and building us into a peaceful home. And I want to invite you this morning to believe that with all of your heart. Let's pray for that. God and Father, you sent your son to demolish a wall of hostility between us and you. You so loved us that you were willing even even to send your son to die in the midst of this amazing, miraculous demolition mission. Father, we praise you for that. You did not have to break down that wall, and you did. You did not have to include us in your kingdom, but you did. Father, allow for us to see that reservoir of grace there in front of us, ready for us to swim and bathe and drink and all of the things that we can do with your grace in order to experience your blessing, God, I ask that you would allow for us to relish it. Lord, would you increase the joy of our salvation? Lord, I pray also that uh, your uh, wall-destroying and home-building would not just be relegated to the spiritual places, but in our lives, Lord, today. Uh, Lord, that we would be, um, Lord, working for unity. We would be working for peace, like Jesus Christ worked for peace. Father, I pray for myself. I pray that you would uh, make me a better bridge builder through evangelism. Lord, I pray that you would make me uh, a better uniter, uh, Lord, through uh, inviting people into my life. Lord, I pray that you would make me into, um, Lord, a person who is uh, uh, so after and so wantsome of Jesus. He's willing to go anywhere and do anything that you command me to do uh, to extend or reveal your kingdom here in this city. Uh, Lord, I pray that for me. I pray that for this congregation, Lord, um, and I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.